Welcome everyone to episode 88 of the Anagram Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel and joining us on today's podcast is the Russ Hudson. Russ is an Anagram 5 and between he and Suzanne I think they have uh, roughly 1,000 years of Anagram teaching and experience. In this reader's opinion, far and away the best two books and the best two primers and introductions to the Anagram are Suzanne's Road Back to You and Russ's The Wisdom of the Enneagram. I could roll off a topic or two that they discuss or give you a quote, but it wouldn't be fair or do justice to the rest of the show. Let's just get to what is possibly the plug of the year. The 2020 Enneagram Bootcamp is going to be virtual. Four-day event, July 17th and 18th and August 7th and 8th, you can buy a four-day pass for the Enneagram Family Systems Grief and Trauma with Dr. Barbara Ryla, Dr. Andy Stoker, and Suzanne. And when we talk about trauma, we're going to be talking about the, the deep trauma as well as trauma light, you know, the everyday things that we have to deal with and go through. You can find a link for that uh, on all the websites, lifeinthetrinityministry.com, theanneagramjourney.org, and suzannestabile.com. University Press has come out with The Path Between Us Journal. So if you are looking for a great utensil to record your Enneagram journey, then look no further. You found it. You can find that through University Press. I bet it's on Amazon. And we have it um, in the store on the Life in the Trinity Ministry website. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And then also check out episode 89, which is, I mean, it's free teaching. It's going to be Russ going through the passions and virtues of all nine Enneagram numbers. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you online at the Anagram Journey Bootcamp. How long has it been since you were on an airplane? Oh my gosh, last airplane I was on was uh, the beginning of March. I was out in uh, California for the Wisdom 2.0 conference, and I also taught at the Esalen Institute, and I flew back like around the 7th or 8th of March, and then straight into um, solitary from there. That was, that was the last time I flew. I was in Egypt prior to that. Exactly. And one of the things that I read that you wrote about being in Egypt was that you were, uh, I don't know what exact word you used, impressed, aware of the fact that ancient understanding was so different from our understanding. And when I read that, I thought, oh, I want to know oh, more yes. about that. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, well, you know, the ancient world, as far as I can tell, lived closer to the sense of presence or essence or spirit than most modern people did. That's kind of counter to what we might have been taught to think. And it was certainly kind of shocking, a little bit scandalous to me to start to see that, feel that, to go into these ancient places and feel what was there. It isn't like they had everything worked out, but they understood things about the human journey that we didn't. And what I think I learned a lot about is that we tend to think that nobody in the ancient world talked with each other. 
like the smart people who were Jews were just hanging out with them and the early Christians weren't talking with them and the ancient Egyptians who'd been around for thousands of years at that point. Well, gee, there was nothing to learn from them and the Greeks, etc. No, they all talked with each other. And Ooh. to study the beginning of our, our faith traditions is to see the very complex, rich conversation that produced these ideas. They didn't come from a single source. They came from a lot of people over a long period of time. And I was very struck by the way that some of these very ancient ideas were reworked or presented in a new format in Judaism, in Christianity, and in Greek philosophy. But why would people throw away great ideas that had been around a long time? We might have new philosophies or ideas uh, appear in our time or in our future, but we're not going to throw out gravity. (laughs) There's older ideas that are useful. And that's what smart people back then figured out. Do you think it's because they had less uh, distraction? Probably that's one good reason, you know. I also think that, you know, while to use Egypt as an example, but if you could just as easily go to ancient India or ancient China or any of these very old civilizations, we're talking thousands of years before Moses, really a long time ago. The societies were more oriented towards spiritual life, towards the inner life, towards the afterlife, you might say. That was their whole focus. Look at the Egyptians. They, my old friend John Anthony West used to say they were a one-issue culture. What's going <laughs> to happen in the afterworld? That's all they were focused on. And it's interesting to note that Egypt was the first place that Christianity really caught on in, in popular culture in a big way. And a lot of our theology and fundamental assumptions, the sort of philosophy around the teachings of Jesus, actually, many of them were started in Egypt, in Alexandria. Most people don't know that. I certainly didn't until I started studying this stuff. Yeah. yeah. When you teach uh, everywhere in the world, what stands out to you about different ways that different cultures receive the Enneagram? Well, there's two sides of that, I think. And one of them is that people are people, no matter where you go. You might be with a tribes person from East Africa. You might be with uh, a conservative family in the Middle East. You might be in Europe and family more like one of our North American families. You might be in Southeast Asia, but people are people. And when we describe the patterns of the nine points, the nine types, they get it. Nobody says, oh, I don't know anybody like that. People instantly recognize that, oh, yeah, that's what a two is like. I have, a, I have an aunt like that. Oh, God, my brother, I think he's a three. No, no matter where I go, people, bingo, they get it. The other side of it is, I think, having grown up in the military and lived in other countries when I was younger, one of my personal values is to be a good guest. So when I am in other countries, I don't come in like, hi, I'm the the American hotshot who has all the answers. I come in with the respect for the culture and the traditions there, and then listening and sharing. I say, oh, here's what I know, and this might be useful to you. 
rather than coming in like people are clueless and they, I've, I've got something to download on them. But I find that that's true just as much here in the United States or North America. You know, people respond better to being in a conversation. Mm-hmm. My parents took me uh, to Europe when I was in the eighth grade. And my dad sat me down and said, uh, you know how you've been taught when you're a guest in someone else's home? That's what we're going to do for the next 46 days. Perfect. Yeah. That's exactly always, how I see it. Yeah. It always stuck with me. He did that well, and I learned well from him. One of our friends, Christine, who uh, we actually get to have a conversation with soon, and or of Asian descent. She's Korean. Korean. Thank you. And uh, she talks about, she's an Enneagram eight and she talks about how her culture made it difficult for her to live out and being an Enne- a female Enneagram eight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, have you experienced that? You know, because you, you have traveled so much and taught so many different countries, kind of that challenge or obstacle in your teaching. Yeah, I think you have to be sensitive to the values of that culture. And you could say that different cultures have maybe one, two, three Enneagram types that are prevalent. Not It doesn't mean there's more people of that type in the culture. It just means the agreed upon values of that culture are those types. So some cultures, for example, um, let me give another example. In China, Everyone wants to be a three because they're all trying to achieve. They're all trying to get somewhere. They're the, the gifted young people in the villages have the chance to go into the big cities and maybe make money and, and fortune and bring things back to the village. And so there's a lot of pressure on young people to be that high achiever. So they all want to be threes. In Japan, people don't want to be threes. There, the idea is the blade of grass that sticks up will be chopped down. There are unpleasant terms in British culture for someone who tries to stand out, right? And so there, there are, and you know what I'm talking about. So there, there are different views about this. Um, in our culture, although this is changing, it's evolving for a long time, to be a quiet, introverted person meant you were a loser. <laughs> you were going to get left behind by life. And so what I'm always trying to do is be sensitive to the prevailing values of the culture, but particularly to direct my message at the people who will tend to be the oddballs within that particular framework and help everybody there and see the value and necessity of these people who hold shadow pieces for each mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I feel sure Dallas is a three city. You know, everything here is very slick. And and people seem to be, um, they either want to be a three or they for sure don't want to be a three. Yeah. And I um, find that threes in Dallas in groups that are doing some kind of self-awareness work don't want to admit that they're threes Mm -hmm. i find that a lot in the united states i think it's because we're ambivalent towards that meme 
that value system mm-hmm. uh, as such a predominant sensibility in our culture. It has been for a long time. I think other values, other type values are rising now and three is starting to fade. But through the most of the memory of my life, the three value is what you see in advertising, what the heroes are in the movies, how you're supposed to be, put your fish, you know, just do it. <laughs> Get out there and yeah. make something happen. And I think that that makes people want to rebel against that on one hand, but subconsciously, of course, we're all trying to be that person. People who actually are threes, I think, are embarrassed about it. But I also think that's where it's, it's again, incumbent upon those of us who are teachers, who are being leaders in various ways in this Enneagram movement, to be extra sensitive in how we talk about three, to not turn three into a cartoon. There's a real human heart there. There's a real soul going through a journey. And so I really go, I take extra time to unpack the three in a way that people who have that as their predominant pattern feel seen, understood, loved, and met. And I used to always joke that, you know, as we get into teaching the three, everyone cries because the three is the part of us that really needs a good weep. And then we get into the four and our spirits kind of get lighter because, my gosh, we've already been through the ringer so many times. We're actually better off than we thought. Yeah. So yeah. So it, it's sort of funny how these things play out. But yeah, I think there's some of the types. Another one is seven. You know, sevens always get they're in parties all the time, and they're this and that. Oh my gosh, that's such a it's such a superficial or surface understanding of what seven's about. And we're gonna and, and you know you and I understand we've been at this a long time. There's a long journey of really getting down to the soul of each of the type and what matters to each point and the the beauty of what each one is struggling to be. Mm-hmm. And the uh, reality of uh, all the gifts that each one has, if we could just oh yes, set the table for them to offer them, right? That's right. I, you know, when I teach. Every time I do, I try to give people the good news first. (laughs) I try to have them feel, if I was going to put it in Christian terms, I want people to see themselves as Christ sees them. Mm -hmm. I want people to have the feeling that they are beloved. I want them to know that there's something beautiful, that they were created for a purpose, that they Mm -hmm. have a gift to give. I want them to know that. When a person knows that, they can look at the distortions. They can look at the messiness. They can see the cookies. They kind of know already they've made a mess. But yeah. if we can look at it from that, that perspective of, of grace, they, people rise to the occasion in ways that blow me away every single time. I never get bored doing this. <laughs> okay. Um, how long, when did you start teaching? I started teaching, uh, well, I started working with Don Riso in 1991, and I didn't start teaching all at once. Uh, He had me come along. Don Riso uh, was a four with a three wing, and he was self-preservation dominant. 
So let's just say he was private and shy. <laughs> he had that three wing, which helped him a lot, you know, in terms of getting things done and staying on course with his book and getting himself out to teach. But he just would get so exhausted and overwhelmed. So he wanted to bring me along because I was like reinforcements for him that he, he felt having a, a partner to teach with lightened his burden. But as I started to do it and found a certain facility for it, he really wanted me to do more and more and people seemed to like what I was doing. So it, it sort of happened gradually. So I would say between 1991 and 1994, I kind mm -hmm. of increasingly stepped into the role of, of teaching. I want to talk about my first experience of hearing you teach. And then I have some questions I really want to ask. Um, okay. You and I were both teaching uh, at an event uh, in Albuquerque, um, mm -hmm. sponsored by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Laughing and, and Weeping. Yep. <laughs> and was, that, was that the name of the event? Laughing and Weeping. Okay. That was the name <laughs> of the event. We were also Laughing okay, and Weeping. Yeah. <laughs> we were. Yes. That was Richard Burr's idea for the title. Yeah. yeah. And we were at the speaker's table, and uh, we'd only been able to talk briefly, and you went up on the stage to talk about the heart triad. And you drew uh, an enormous, in my memory, red heart on a flip chart, and you sat down in a chair, and you started talking about twos, threes, and fours, and I thought... I thought two things. I thought, I know nothing. And I thought, I could listen to this expression of who I am forever. And I decided right then that I should always stay connected to other people who teach my number or my type, that I should be very careful about managing my understanding of my type by how I teach it or by what I know or by what I think I know. And I, I, will, I will never forget that because I, I wouldn't say that Father Roar's greatest connections are to the heart triad people. Yeah, I think he'd agree <laughs> with that. Yes, he would. And, um, you know, he spent so much time with me, helping me, me know that I knew what I was talking about. And yet, if we don't come together from our differences, I don't know. I'm not sure how much we're seeing. So having set the table with that, I'd like to ask you what the changes are, both good and not helpful, in your time of knowing and teaching the Enneagram. And let me just throw in for anyone out there who's thinking about it, the three of you, Richard Rohr and the two of you, represent all three of the triads. Yep. Yes, we do. So, That's right. Yeah. yeah. Good and not helpful. Um, well, I think since I started teaching, when I first encountered the Enneagram field, I had been doing inner work practices for a long time. And I knew the Enneagram as part of the Gurdjieff work. And mm -hmm. there we don't really talk about types at all. 
It was just seen as a way of understanding the mysteries of the human connection with the divine. There's a reason you got a big circle and a triangle in there, for example. And, you know, there, but to know that in a felt sense, in a direct way, not just theoretical, to have the experience of it. And I worked at that for years and years and years. So when I encountered the Enneagram, I understood it initially as a help to come back home, to come back to me in the here and now where I used to tell people that's where God can reach us. Us coming back to here and now is saying yes to God, <laughs> right? Yeah. Is if we're not present, we're kind of hiding out or we're hiding out in the back rooms. So <laughs> I, uh, I thought of it only as a way to look at what was distracting me from being present in my body, heart, and mind. And I came to learn, yeah, the original idea of the types came from the Desert Fathers. That's exactly what they were doing. They were looking at the distractions from our heartfelt presence and connection with God. So that's how I viewed it. But when I came in, there was a lot of talk about types, but that purpose seemed to have gone a little fuzzy. Mm -hmm. Eventually, I heard about Richard Rohr coming forth, and I was very happy, and I was so grateful when I finally got to meet him. And I just started going out talking about this, and Don was very receptive. Don had been uh, in Jesuit seminary for 20 years before he started teaching the Enneagram. But we, we were, there was an orientation toward it being a tool for spiritual discernment and for the cultivation of our attention. You can't do a lot with prayer and meditation without a, a developed attention. In fact, you could argue that prayer and meditation are tools for developing our attention. And as I say that, I would have to add that, you know, it's, one of the most mysterious questions I've ever had is what is attention? And I've mm -hmm. never had any master or teacher any adequately explain it. We don't know, but it's the most fundamental thing of being a human being in any case. Uh, so I just, a lot of people were talking about types and developing theories, but there was a maturation that went on and more and more teachers started to learn about how it could be a tool for this discernment, how it could be a tool for awakening, for transmuting the heart. And that gave a kind of second life and a second wave to the Enneagram. I think if that had not happened, it kind of would have petered out by the end of the 90s, beginning of the knots. Mm -hmm. And we put out the book, The Wisdom of the Enneagram, to sort of jumpstart that process. We wanted to not just write about types, but to say, what the heck is this thing for? How can it help you? Mm -hmm. what, I, what I see happening now is kind of a weird <laughs> reverse wave of that in that um, there has been a rapid dissemination of this Enneagram material, at least the most basic part of it. On internet, there are people doing all kinds of blogs and things. There are people doing funny things on YouTube. It's here, there, and everywhere. I mean, I grew up and nobody heard of this. Now, chances are pretty good that when you meet somebody, they, they know something about this. But a lot of it is, is back to the basic, 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 basic teaching of just nine boxes to put people in. And 
that's interesting, but it won't do that much to transform your life, right? It's, it's an entryway. It's a, it's a portal. And I just want to encourage people to go past the portal, entertaining though it is. It is entertaining. It's not particularly challenging. Right. When, right. When I learned exactly. it, when I learned it, it ate my lunch. Like I, yeah. I, I immediately knew that I had so much work to do. And isn't it interesting to think about the fact that in those, in the, in the nineties, often the people who were studying the Enneagram were Catholic nuns and priests yeah, and people with your background who, so yeah. they were people who had already done introspective work. That's right. And who already had a place to stand so that they could look at the potential of the Enneagram because they've done the work to understand their own potential. Yes. They were coming at it with an already developed cult sense of contemplation. Right. And right. that's really, it was a tool designed for that. Now it's such a good tool that you can do a lot of magic tricks without it, mm -hmm. but sooner or later you're going to realize the limitations of that. And you can get in over your head if you don't really understand the deeper soul work part of it, the deeper psychology of it. Um, and so I'm always encouraging people. I don't want to, if somebody's interested, I don't want to discourage them, but I want to say, you guys, you're just, like I said, you're in the foyer, you're in the, the front room. There's a whole palace back here. You ought to check it out. And um, I think some will, and, and uh, some do. Um, I think that uh, other people will be amused for a bit and move on to the next thing. Yeah. That's just life. But I think, it fulfills a way at its most profound that we can bring a deeper spirituality into our lived lives in the modern world. I think that's its real purpose. One of the great things about this time period is that, first of all, kind of what y'all said, just looking at it is um, an easy intro. It's easy to be introduced to the Enneagram, which is excellent. Yeah. And it's and that's a great way to get people's foot in the door, you know, with uh, with something simple for people to understand. And then the catch, though, y'all talked about how it has a spiritual background, which seems to be. And this is where I'm asking y'all a question because y'all both will know more about this than than I do. Uh, like the backgrounds of other things, someone have that spiritual background. That's more of an analytical assessment type background. Yeah, and it's not as designed to go as deeply as the Enneagram is. Exactly. And it's good as far as it goes. It can be this thing to help grow attention, to help grow your spiritual life. It should people choose it. So yeah. as old timers, here's, here's how I wrote the question to you. Mm -hmm. What can we be doing? I called us old timers. I hope you're all right with that. I, I am an old timer. I'm fine with that. What can we be doing? Is as it okay old -timers? if I say refer to y'all as old timers? So it's really, you know, is that <laughs> David Daniels used to say that we're summer chickens? There you go. All right, we're I like summer chickens. Right. We've been spring chickens. Now we're summer chickens. Now summer chickens. <laughs> what can we be doing as old timers to embrace the new enthusiasm? Uh, and here's what I wrote: 
when so much of that interest represents a quick and easy assumed knowledge of something we've spent our entire adult lives trying to understand? That's a, that's a big question. I was I, I was very touched by that question, actually. I think by sharing our passion and enthusiasm for the deeper territories, and sometimes I do that with students by doing my best to meet them where they are and to give them little inner tasks to do to take it to another level. For example... When people want to learn how to teach this, I say you're not really getting the Enneagram when you're holding the other types at arm's length, when you're making it about them. One thing that a habit easy to fall into teaching this is you're talking about a type as if they're not in the room, like you're gossiping about them. Well, you know how those twos are, and then they do this to you, and then they're like this, and... You know, of course, if you're a two in that room, you want to hide under the desk or something or or you feel angry and insulted. But it's like when I'm teaching the two, those are the people most listening to me in that moment. I had to be speaking directly with them. The other thing I encourage my students to do is if you're talking about the unsavory side of each of the types, even the part that can be a little funny, I talk about that stuff in the first person so that it's like I'm inviting people to wear it. So mm-hmm. if I'm talking about ones, I, just, I don't say, well, you know, those ones do this and then they're really uptight. And then I say, I say more like, you know, when I get triggered that way, I get sort of angry, but I don't want to be angry. So I kind of contain it and I stop breathing and I suddenly am, I'm in this rigid pattern and, you know, and then everybody gets it. And then all the ones in the room are nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just what it's like, but I'm making it okay because I'm willing to wear it. I'm not saying, well, you know how those ones are, which yeah. just separating. That's, that's, that's the opposite of what the way the Enneagram is supposed to bring us together. So that's a little hint that I give to people. But I also give students tasks like take a week being each type. (laughs) Be a one this week. Just notice all the ways that you're like a one. Notice all Mm -hmm. the ways you're like a two or a three. You'll see plenty. But when you actually hit the one that's your type, it'll be you want to hide under the desk. (laughs) You'll feel, yes, yes, yes. Oh, my God. At the same time. Yep. If you're not miserable, that's not you. Yes. And finding your type, I always tell them, is the beginning of a journey. It's not the end. It's like I used to talk with people in, who kind of into more new agey stuff. And they said, well, I've had an enlightenment experience, man. I said, good. Now you have some sense of what reality is. You can begin your journey. <laughs> doesn't mean you're finished. It means God sent you a message. Now you've got to follow the implications of it. So, you know, I think that if we look at them, yes, they, you might be right, but keep an open mind. I also share, for example, I thought I was a four for two years when I first learned this. And I had to eat lots of crow when I realized I wasn't. I was absolutely sure that I was a two. No, there was just no room for me to be anything else. I try really hard when I'm teaching to lead with my weakness. It's like, why would, why would anybody tell me their story if I'm not going to tell them mine? 
right? Exactly. I, I don't learn well from people who have lots of answers and no questions. Right. When I first got into all of this many years ago, there was a musician named Robert Fripp. He's still around. And uh, he was a famous guitar player. And I was a guitar player. And he had a band called King Crimson. And he played with David Bowie. You know, if you listen to that song, Heroes, everybody knows that song. That guitar that goes, that guitar that just sings, that's Robert Fripp. Anyway, he was kind of a mentor to me. And when I was a very young man, first having questions about all this, he took me out for a coffee. And he said, you know, the age of the guru is over. This is done. And anybody claiming to be that, regard them with suspicion. He said that only distortion and trouble seems to come out of that model. We now have a model of older brothers and sisters helping younger brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And together we make our way up the mountain. But he said, uh, find some older brothers and sisters that could show you the ropes. Like when you're going out on your first date, you know, maybe an older sister, brother, or, or somebody who functions that way for you can give you some tips. And it's like that on the path. And, and he says, and one day you'll be an older brother and you'll help, you'll give people some tips. But he says, it's like passing it along. It's, it's more like that. And I agree with you that the way, the first way I find that works is by sharing my own vulnerability, mm -hmm. sharing my human, goofy, messy, crazy life. Mm -hmm. I don't have everything <laughs> yeah, I've enjoyed watching your uh, album covers on Facebook oh, as you accepted that challenge. It's interesting how much we can learn uh, or, or assume we're learning about somebody by observing that, right? Oh, yeah. All right, here's my, my next big question. This is a big question. Uh-oh. How do you... Well, I'm not worried about you having an answer. Just laughing. I'm just laughing. How do you think any RAM wisdom is helpful during the pandemic? Wisdom, not information, by the way. Right. Yeah. I think Gurdjieff said something really interesting that always struck me. He said, when everyone around you is going nuts, if you can remember to be present, in that situation, he said, it's like all the grace, all the angels flow toward you because on high, they need somebody available on the ground. I'm paraphrasing hugely, but that's the essence of what he was saying <laughs> that, you know, grace flows to the one willing to receive it in a moment where everybody's being cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Mm -hmm. So we're in a time where there's a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty. Our daily routines and habits are disrupted. For many of us, our work is disrupted. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity to be triggered, but there's also a lot of opportunity to step out of our habitual self and see other things about ourselves that we ordinarily wouldn't see. We can really be more revealed unto our inner wisdom when we're not so caught up in the momentum of our usual life. And I think if I can stay grounded 
in my body, heart, and mind under more stressful conditions, I become more useful. I become more part of a solution. And in seeing how my pattern keeps trying to fix everything and can't, and then turning to something else in my heart, I get practiced in remembering that there's something here available to me besides my usual way of responding to everything. And that is indeed uh, an opportunity. I, I think it is. I'm, I'm using it that way the best I can. There's things I can't do anything about. You know, it's, it's the good old serenity prayer, isn't it? It is. And it's, um, Joe is a uh, head of congregational care. And I've been trying to send the senior pastor uh, something meaningful thought about every 10 days. And it occurred to me not trying to put anything on him. But at one point I said, you know, I just don't think we know how to live with mystery. True. Right? And I think Enneagram wisdom has taught me, is teaching me, some tools for living with mystery by recognizing that there are eight other ways of seeing other than what I see. Yes. And if I could engage with those eight ways of seeing and learn, then I might have a better chance for a whole picture. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I'm my most uh, anxious when I'm just tooing when I'm, when I'm just uh, wanting to see my kids and wanting to teach and wanting to do what I do and wanting to do what makes me feel valuable and, you know, all, all of that. I, I fear that I didn't start our whole conversation with uh, your work changed my life in the sense that it built the foundation along with Richard Rohr's work and Hurley and Donson's work that I could stand on to try to do my own in some way. Yeah. And uh, now we're here and it's years later. And I know that you've had a lot of loss in the last couple of years in terms of losing Don and people that you've known and taught with and worked with for a long time. And I said in my list of questions, so you could exit if you just weren't interested, that one of my questions was going to be if we could teach together, you and I, for a day or for a weekend, what would you want to teach? Well, I think, uh, obviously, to talk about how this Enneagram work is really for this deeper purpose. And then we could select, you know, the different kind of topics or subjects that seems more congruent with that. But I think just orienting people, getting people to have the sense that this is not telling them who they are. It's giving them a way to orient toward who they are that will help expand their experience of themselves in the world, right? Expand their journey of faith, 
That's what I'd be interested in doing. And I think, you know, obviously there's a lot you can just very well teach on your own. And there's a lot I can very well teach on my own, but it would be interesting to just consider what would be some of the beautiful, you know, uh, points of uh, communion, you know, the, like a Venn diagram, you know, <laughs> what are the places where there's a beautiful overlap that we would be able to bring something that would be more than the sum of the parts that that would be very intriguing too. Let's do okay. something. Why not? Let's do something. I, I so consider think- you. Yeah. I consider you. A, I, I, how can I say this? An ally. I, I consider you an ally. There's some of us working in our quiet ways to try to bring a certain sensibility to what this is. Richard Gore's taught with me about that. And, you know, there's some people, you and, and those two and Cynthia Bourgeau and my friend Cheryl, and there's certain people really working very hard to offer people this ramp onto another highway <laughs> that takes us to that takes us to a much more interesting destination than just knowing a few facts about the nine types fun though that may be. So um, I think it would be such a holistic approach for us to come together as head and heart people to um, set the table for folks to know what to do, how to do, when to do it, what is theirs to do. The question of my every morning is what is mine to do? And these days, about every 10 days, the answer in my journal is teach with Russ Hudson. (laughs) (laughs) So as soon as we can, great. Well, as soon as we can get together and uh, do that, we'll put it on our calendars. I don't know how long that'll take us to figure out and we'll, We'll do that. Also, um, I hope that maybe in six months or so, we might be able to do this again. And um, I'd like to talk with you about what I'm learning about liminality. I've been talking about liminality for 20 years probably, but I didn't quite have this depth of understanding about it. So I'm doing a lot of work around that right now, and I, I would love for us to be able to talk about that. Yeah, liminality is super important, and uh, I had the fun of trying to write that article for for uh, Wanting. You did uh, a good job. I wrote that while I was in Egypt. You did a good job. <laughs> I was sitting in Egypt in the hotel trying to write this. But yeah, the whole, I don't see how we can have faith without liminality, right. which is what I was trying to point to in that article. You know, faith takes us beyond our beliefs. That's, ooh, that's a little scary for some people, but it's true. That that what God is is so much beyond our beliefs. We can't, when we start the journey, we can't really even begin to grasp. I want to jump, uh, just one last question. Okay. You know, when we have an Enneagram 5 on, they talk some about life as an Enneagram 5. Would you say maybe just like, and you've, you've touched on a little bit with, when we were going through the virtues and talking about when, you know, quarantine to debunk some myths, but maybe just a couple minutes on your thoughts of what you would want people to know about fives from, from the Russ Hudson. I think one thing is just a general truth that although we have differences 
as from our Enneagram perspectives, there's a lot of things that are just the same for everybody. You know, fives, we have the same needs as everybody else. It's just some things that we need are perhaps more exaggerated in our psyche. And each type is like that. Things that we need. I was trying, I went through a period of time where I was trying to be the anti-five, you know, just be Mr. Lovey-dovey, huggy guy and all that and everything. It was kind of fun, you know. Once I figured out how to be in touch with my suffering heart and break out of that box, you know, I was, uh, there was a journey of getting a little sloppy the other way for a while. It's like, woohoo, I'm out of the jail, so I'm going to go out and go crazy. But that didn't work too well either and wasn't very true. And I saw that my introversion is something I can't decide about. It's it's a physiological thing. If I don't uh, take certain time to be with myself and recharge my battery, I get sick. And I love being with people. I see as a five, I prefer being with people when I have a context to be with them. When we're there for a reason, when there's something to talk about. Just hanging out with people, I, I tend to sort of start looking off to the sides and do the five-ish stuff. And I try very hard not to do that because I know it's rude. <laughs> but it, it's, it's I do better when I have context. So when I'm talking with uh, men or women who are in relationship with fives, it's how can I reconnect with my partner? I always say don't start talking about the relationship find a topic that you're both interested in and have a conversation about something you're interested in. And, and that will bring the five out to connect and to play again. We are, I think, like I used to say about eights, do you think eights act tough because they're hard inside or do they act tough because they're mush balls inside because they're tender, right? They put on those shells because they're tender. Same thing. Fives are dealing with their, heightened sensitivity like a little for us is a lot now it's a funny thing like in some things like with flavors of food or like listening to music or a creative thing i can go for something elaborate and big or and so forth but other things are i would have found them assaultive when i was younger and now i just would find them Big. I have to take a deep breath. Uh, if I'm, you know, teaching live and suddenly I've got six, seven different people asking me questions at the same time, rather than make them wrong or leave, I take a deep breath and get back in touch with my body and heart so that I can be with it. But uh, I think the the other side of that for those of us who are with fives is just to be aware that that's a that it, as a five, it's sort of like we're a sea creature. Think of like a sea anemone and we have all these little invisible tentacles going out several feet. And if you come into our field, we feel it. And our first reaction, like one of those sea creatures to contract, if you don't want us to contract or you want to do what you can do, you can, you can be more gentle in how you approach and how you come into the field and take your time. Um, I think uh, it's, it's we fives, it's our job to get a little more durable and to get a little more guts under mm -hmm. us. And that's our part of it. And, and so we have, we have our work cut out for us too. But if you're looking at, at co-creating something in a relationship, that's how both people can do it. I think, you know, sometimes I like to think I'm over it, but then again, I live alone. 
and I have for so many years. Mm -hmm. um, here I am. I would say it's not that I always want to be alone, but that I can make the best of my own company. Mm -hmm. Pangs of loneliness sometimes like anybody, but I know how to, in a certain sense, find a way to make my alone time rich. Mm -hmm. I, and I cannot conceive of being bored. Just there's always something interesting. Yeah, it's like when in the five space, and it's rather, we're the next door neighbor of the force. <clears throat> there's this expectation that people aren't going to be there in the long run. And rather than the four goes through a lot of drama and storm and drama about it, there's just like a kind of acceptance of it. That's just how it is. Get over yourself. Tough up. Toughen yourself up. Uh, it's sort of like in the movie um, A Beautiful Mind. Mm -hmm. Russell Crowe, who I think is probably an eight in real life, did a beautiful job playing John Nash of five who had schizophrenia. That complicates matters. But th that scene where he started to go crazy again and his wife, who I believe was two, start to leave with the child. And there's this scene where he just sits down alone in the apartment. And you see that shift happening where, okay, this is how it is. I'm going to be alone the rest of my life. I'm not going to be with my family. But then when she comes back and looks at him and he looks up and he can't believe it. And it's very hard to not be moved and touched by that, you know. And then that he's willing after that to go through what's necessary for his healing of his mental health. Uh, there's a lot of things where, you know, that's the difference. The four kind of stays in that realm of protesting the, the situation, whereas the five kind of, we write things off. We, um, we, our, our form of lack of forgiveness is to just erase things, amputate things, let go of things. That's yeah. done. Yeah. Well, I can't wait till next time. And I can't wait till we figure out when we can get together and uh, do what we do. I hope it's here so all my friends can, my and our community can encounter you and hear you. I've been to Dallas in years. I used to teach there every year for years. Well, it's, it's time. Um, Bless your heart. I Take know. care of yourself. Stay safe. Stay home. Be well. Thank you. This was beautiful, wonderful. Till next time, my dears. Thank you. Thanks. Russ, thank you so much. Andrew.